This is another in our series of coronavirus episodes of Scientific American Science Talk, hosted on March 19, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. In early March, the Prime Minister of Vietnam directed the government there to draft a directive to prohibit wildlife trade and consumption to be submitted to him by April 1st. In February, China took similar actions. To find out more about the wildlife trade and its relationship to the current coronavirus outbreak, I called Christian Walzer. He's the executive director of Global Health at the Wildlife Conservation Society. We both live in the Bronx, but due to the current situation, we spoke by phone. Tell me about uh, the situation in Vietnam where the uh, wildlife uh, outdoor markets or wildlife markets for food consumption are uh, apparently going to be banned. And what's the situation elsewhere where such markets have uh, traditionally existed? Yeah, so these markets, which are really very unique, even on a global scale, just by their sheer size and, and diversity of species, uh, which are traded at these um, markets, have all already been banned beginning of February um, in China. So there's been a permanent ban on any kind of wildlife trade, um, be it for consumption, for medicinal purposes, um, even for furs, any, any kind of wildlife product is prohibited at the moment. The movement, trade, sale, and consumption is is um, temporarily banned. And China has moved on to now permanently ban any wildlife trade um, related with consumption. So that was the big first step. And um, they're working on legislation right now to get that um, locked down, so to say. And then Vietnam just followed um, a few days ago with a statement that they will similarly close down um, markets and the trade of wildlife um, related to consumption. And we do assume that there will be a knock-on effect on on the bordering countries like Laos and um, Cambodia. And what is the problem with these markets? Why are we so concerned about them? So these markets um, just... A quick picture so you can imagine what they look like. These are um, areas where um, a large number of different species from rats um, and, and, you know, there are different species of field rat, what they call field rats in Southeast Asia. So these are larger rat species um, which they which they capture and breed um, on farms together with bats, squirrels, porcupines, um, you know, now and then illegally, then pangolins and illegal primates. And then all that is mixed together with domestic livestock. So you have a lot of poultry there. You will have um, pigs. And then, of course, you have a lot of humans. And by putting all these species together and, um, you know, they, they're also additionally extremely stressed. They've been captured. Many of them have been captured in the wild are in terrible um, conditions, uh, holding conditions. So very stressed and shedding viruses um, and um, able to excrete these viruses. Um, You imagine they're stacked on top of each other. So you will have, um, let's say, some squirrels um, uh, excreting virus, which will drop down onto a porcupine below them. And that porcupine may be above some chickens and so on. So you have a great possibility for the exchange of virus and viral components. And um, then you have the whole process of 
preparing the food. So you're actually in the same place where you're basically creating the environment for new viruses. You're also going to be slaughtering. So you will have blood being mixed. Um, you will be handing that off to humans who will be um, in direct contact with the excrements with the blood possibly, and then we'll take that product home. So it is really, uh, you really couldn't design um, a spillover interface in any better way than this. So this is the main concern, the large diversity of species with obviously unknown um, viruses, which they naturally host, being mixed together and on a small, on a, in a tight area, basically. And you use the word spillover. That has a particular meaning in this context, right? Right. A spillover event. Um, you'd have to, I think the best way to imagine is, you know, each animal um, is a container. And within that container, it, it carries and hosts viruses and bacteria and, and fungi, which um, do not cause it any harm. And similarly, we as humans, we host viruses and bacteria, which do not cause us any harm. And as we move about, we carry these with us. And it's when these containers are able to share these viruses. So basically, you get a virus moving from one container, let's say um, some wildlife species, moving into the container of the human. And then sometimes, and it's a rare event, these viruses can actually move, let's say, from uh, something that looks a bit very different, a porcupine, definitely different than a human, can move across into a human and actually get into a human cell and start to replicate. And then on a much, much rarer occurrence, thankfully, then transmit from human to human. So it's quite an achievement for a virus, so to say, to actually manage to jump from one species to the other and then actually um, be able to transmit within this new species. But it's sort of a, a slot machine with um, a lot of uh, dials and... Every once in a while, they all come up and you do get this event. Exactly. It's really a numbers game. And I think this, the way I, I would see it, these markets are just increasing your chance of, of, of winning, such as or losing in this case. Just by you know having a lot of species on every day of the year, you're actually stressing them so that you will get more viral shedding. Um, and then you, you put in the humans in there as well, because consumption, of course, increases the interface because you, um, as I said, you're in contact with the blood, um, you're ingesting it. Um, it's, it's really just a numbers game, as you said. Why do you think uh, this particular coronavirus outbreak has had such a dramatic effect on policy? Uh, because we've had other coronavirus outbreaks. We have had the ever-present threat of flu where uh, th these markets would serve a similar kind of role in the uh, transmission of a possible new flu variation. Um, so what's, what's different now other than the obvious, you know, millions of people are being affected? So the main issue with these spillover events is their unpredictability. So we, with flu, we just know when it gets cold in, in late fall, the influenza cases are just going to rise. So our medical systems and our infrastructure is prepared for that. When a spillover event happens like this uh, new coronavirus, 
it's completely unpredictable where it's going to go. How how infectious is it? What's the you know the community attack um, level? Um, what are the clinical symptoms? How much resource are you going to need to treat the population, and so on? And it's this unpredictability, which is always so difficult for society at a at large base to grasp and to react to. Um, and I think this is cause of, this is the main reason for the um, you know the, the economic downturn, the, the very um, divergent um, responses to this um, virus in, at least in the first few weeks. And that is causing the, the anxiety as well. No one is particularly anxious about the flu. So I think we really saw with that West Nile outbreak some time ago, um, a really conscious, and for the first time in, in my memory anyway, a conscious uh, working arrangement between uh, physicians and veterinarians and um, animal researchers, wildlife researchers. And uh, do you think that's the case? And And why is it so important that the lines of communication are open between traditional physicians who treat humans and other doctors who treat animals? So, you know, what is known as a One Health approach in its real um, meaning, that means uh, working together amongst um, human, animal, and environmental health, while also integrating, you know, socioeconomic, cultural, and basically the social sciences into the mix is really, really essential in this type of um, outbreak. And um, the collaborations ongoing at the moment really demonstrate how well that is working. There's the, the virologists have come from the animal health side or from the wildlife health side who are, um, you know, um, sharing massive amounts of data on coronaviruses they've collected in the past 10, 15 years. Um, you have the um, wildlife veterinarians who are out sampling at the markets. You have the um, human and um, veterinary epidemiologists working on the how the disease um, progresses and the dynamics. And then obviously on the therapeutic side, you have a, a human health um, addressing the clinical disease. So it is this is outbreak really shows how important it is to integrate that. And the main reason is the actual outbreak and spillover event is driven by, you know, with ecological and market factors. So if you just looked at it from a human health perspective, once the virus is in the human population, you would miss a really, really important factor in, in, in this outbreak and its progression. So we need to address this together in a multidisciplinary way. And it is really heartening to see um, that it's working very, very well at the moment. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com where we're bringing you the latest news and insights about the coronavirus outbreak, all of which is available free. And as always, there's other science news on the site for your edification and enjoyment. Follow us on Twitter where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 